And it's actually that verse that we're going to spend the majority of our time considering today. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You may be seated. Friends, I don't know what has brought you here today, but I know that Christ has hope for you. Today is Resurrection Sunday. This is our Super Bowl. That is the appropriate response. It is. This is Resurrection Sunday. Amen, right? He is risen, friends. You know what's interesting is Christians, for us, for those who are Christians in this place, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday is a reminder that Christ is risen from the grave, and because he is risen from the grave, nothing will ever be the same. That good news has changed all of life. And I want to extend a special welcome to everyone who is here, including the kiddos. And that's my kiddo who is making the screams right now. And I just want you to know, we love having kids in service. We love the screams and squeals. Uh, it is a sign of life. It is a sign that God welcomes all of us to come here and to, and to hear this good news. And Jesus was the first to even draw children near to himself. But I want to uh, ask, for the kiddos in this place, can I just get a big cheer from you guys? Can I get a big cheer from the kids? Good morning. Woo! Hey, I'm so glad you guys are here. I'm going to ask the kiddos here to see if you can do better than your parents or grandparents. I'm going to say, he is risen, and you're going to say back to me, he is risen indeed. All right, kids, I'm going to say, he is risen, and you're saying back, he is risen indeed. You ready? He is risen. Oh, you guys want to try it one more time? He is risen. That's awesome. All right, now the parents turn, he is risen. That's great. I'm so glad you're here. Well, today, friends, my hope is that in our service, whether it's the songs we've already sung or the prayers that will be offered or this sermon that we're going to be, again, the text will be reflecting on the scripture here that helps you to see how the gospel is for you. And that today, our hope is that you would see and taste and see not only that the Lord is good, but that you would hear and respond to the gospel not just this Sunday, but every Sunday to come, week after week, in a church like this, where you have messy and broken people very much like you, who are in need of its hope. Today, friends, I hope you experience a welcome that is from Christ, and today that his love so captivates you that you would consider to make sense of it, to wrestle with it, and then to come to Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. But it's that good news that we're going to be reflecting on today. And that verse, actually, we'll spend most of our time on. There's more in that verse than we can have time to reflect off, even in a Sunday service or plenty of Sunday services. But nonetheless, we're going to try. In three parts today, we're going to look at the lamb who lived, the lamb who died, and the lamb who lives again. You ready? I hope you will keep your Bibles open with you this morning. And we're going to be in John chapter 1, particularly in verses 29, in verse 29. And uh, if you have trouble locating that, again, you can do so on your phone or using the table of contents. It's what it's there for. Neighbors, help each other out. You're going to want to look at these verses this morning. But let's begin with the Lamb who lived. Now, to set a stage a bit for us today, our passage this passage begins with a man named John, often called John the Baptist, not because he wasn't a Presbyterian, but because he was a baptizer, okay? John the Baptizer. He was one who, who caught the attention of Israel as the first prophet in over 400 years. And as a prophet, the first prophet in 40 
400 years, he caused quite a bit of controversy. You start claiming to speak on behalf of God, and some people are going to ask questions. Especially those whose job it was to make sure that it really was God who was speaking and had every reason to be skeptical. In our passage, these teachers, these leaders, are called the priests and the Levites. And they saw themselves not only as leaders, but protectors of the Jewish people. And the man who stood by the Jordan, dunking people day after day into its water, claiming to speak on behalf of God, was exactly the kind of person who would make them nervous. And so they come to John in chapter, I mean, in verse 19 in chapter 1, asking, John, who in the world do you think you are? I have to tell you, I, have to fi I find John's response remarkable, and I want you to look at it with me. Look at your Bibles in chapter 1, verse 20. Again, in response to the question, John, who do you think you are? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed I am not the Christ. Who are you? I am not the Christ. Uh, thanks a lot, John, but that's not exactly what we were asking for. Now the Christ, the Messiah, was the king that Israel was waiting for. You could think of him as the hero that brought the world that all of us have longed for or would soon bring it. The king God had promised that would make everything right again, who would defeat their enemies, uh, enemies as practical and physical as the Roman government, but, off, but all obviously beyond that as well, every enemy that would come against God's people, every injustice that had come to them from some oppressor, every sorrow, every loss, every death they longed to have undone, a day in which everything sad would become untrue. And they knew that According to their God, their, this would come only in their God's kingdom by hands of a great king, one they called the Christ. And the kind of world that they longed for, and that you and I do on a daily basis, according to the Bible, it is only the Christ who could bring it. And more importantly, this Christ would not only bring us this kind of world, but could bring this world because he would restore us to God himself. To have God and to delight in God forever. Why? Because that central gift, that central goodness of having God was the good that was lost by the very first human beings and the very reason that the world is so broken and hurts so much is because we do not have God. The Christ would make sure, make it finally and forever true that God would be our God, and we would be his people. This hero, the Christ, the King, is the only one who would finally and completely make things right. And year after year, they hoped in him, waited for him, looked for him intently. And John says, I'm not him at all. If there's one thing I know, he says, it's, it's what I am not. I am not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. And I am certainly not the Christ. All I do is prepare his way. It's fascinating. 
not just John's humility, but that he seems so glad to move people beyond himself, to shift the spotlight away. Isn't it refreshing in a day in which everything around us, every person it seems, every influencer it seems, seems to grab more of the spotlight, more reputation, more likes, more influence? John instead shifts it away because he knew the worth instead of the one who was coming. And when that one came, the Christ, the real thing, then he knew he would not even be worthy to untie his shoes. John confessed and did not deny that he was only the opening act. He was just the warm-up. John knows what he is, who he is, by knowing who he is not. I am not the Christ. I had some friends who's in, uh, at seminary, every seminary class, they would begin, the professor would begin class by having every person in that room go around and quote this verse, I am not the Christ. And I would encourage you, start your day every day by looking in the mirror and pointing at yourself and saying, I am not the Christ. John knows who he is by knowing who he is not. John isn't struggling with a lack of self-esteem, though, here. John is speaking instead with the kind of self-forgetfulness you and I can experience when you stand at the edge of a Grand Canyon. Anybody ever seen the Grand Canyon or the Rocky Mountains? Anybody love watching crashing oceans? Think of the last time you saw something that took your breath away. The last thing on your mind in that moment was yourself. Why? Not out of some self-hatred, but you didn't need to think about yourself. It seemed the most inappropriate thing in that moment because your imagination was captivated with something better and more glorious. You didn't need to think of yourself at all because of the glory of what is in front of you. And that's what we see in John. It's as if he says, you think I'm significant? You have no idea who is coming. And unless you're paying attention, you're going to overlook the only one who is worthy of it. It's incredible, even as John is attracting incredible attention and influence as the first prophet in 400 years, he knows what he is not. And because he knows what he is not, he also knows what his job is. His job is to till the soil. His job is to sweep the kitchen. His job is to grease the motor, to set up for the real work to be done. His job was to be a voice crying out in the wilderness. A voice soon enough who would get out of the way and be forgotten. His job was to prepare the way for the Lord. And then he arrives. This Lord arrives. John doesn't just say, wait for him. He says, wait for him for another day. And the very next day, that one comes. Jesus of Nazareth, the one that John said he was making the way straight for. The one who would give hope to the poor, sight to the blind, liberty to the captives. The one who would raise the dead. The Christ has come. But notice, in verse 29, as confusing as it is, as he begins and says, I am not the Christ. What do we expect him then to say when the Christ comes? Here he is. Take a look. Behold, here is the Christ. And yet he's so much more cryptic. What does he say? He says, behold the Lamb of God. Does this mean that maybe John wasn't all that sure? He was ready to confess this one as the Messiah, as the Christ, but then stops short, maybe swaps another 
title? I don't think so. In fact, I think he means to say exactly that, that this one who is coming is the Christ by honing in on what the Christ would do. But then why doesn't he pick some other title? Why doesn't he pick something more powerful like, behold, the warrior of God, or behold, the Satan crusher, or the Roman's worst nightmare? Why doesn't he begin with something like that? The Lamb of God? After all, what comes to your mind when you think of lamb? A lamb. You might think of those religious paintings we often see where lambs show up, something soft and sweet and cuddly, something you'd expect to see largely on an Easter Sunday with the daisies and the bunnies and the pastel shirts and the little wee lambs. But throughout the Bible, it turns out, the image of a lamb is not actually very gentle and sweet. Instead, it is very bloody. Associated not so much with life, but with death. Which brings us to the next point, the lamb who died. Now, to understand this image, we need to actually understand a very important question. A question all of us are answering in some way without even realizing it. It's the reason why you spend money the way you do, why you spend time the way you do, what you daydream about, what you long for in life. Here's the question. What is our greatest need? Let me ask you to consider, how would you answer that question? What, above anything else, is your greatest need? Not what is your needs, there are plenty, and we have trouble defining them, don't we? But what is your greatest one? Is it... Physical health. I had a brother share with me today of his own ailing health and uncertain future. Several of my friends right now are dealing with news that they that doctors don't have for them. They don't know all they know is it's it's grim and uncertain. Is it physical health? Is it political change? Is it to have a life free of pain? Is it For constant entertainment? I mean, think about how many streaming services there are available right now. It is not physically possible for you to to watch everything out right now. We're in a day and age where you can't possibly say to someone, there's nothing good on TV. Is it constant entertainment? Is it for autonomy? The ability to say and do whatever I want? Is it for sexual fulfillment? Is it for success or just to have a stable family? Is it for just a bit more money and predictability? Maybe a little less fear and loss? Is that the greatest need in our lives? What does our society think? What are we told to spend our time, money, and passions on? What are we told is the good life we've always wanted? What is pictured for us? That if we just had it, we would be okay. And what will bring it into our grasp? What is our greatest need? And is it possible that even as you may have a sense of it, you may be able to answer that question, the good life you've longed for, here's what it would look like, here's what would be different than the one I have. Is it possible we've misdiagnosed it? Is it possible we don't see rightly, like someone who goes to the doctor with a cough and comes out finding out that they have cancer? Is it possible we are spending our lives trying to save ourselves without a clear sense even of what we need to be saved from? We wouldn't be the only ones who have trouble diagnosing it. 
In fact, over the last few months here at Bayless, we have been looking through the book of Exodus as a church, in which, in the book of Exodus, the Jewish people are enslaved under the heavy hand of Pharaoh and have been for hundreds of years. And as you can imagine, slaves have quite a few needs. Quite a few things that they prayed for, were desperate for, asked their God to finally break the silence for, whether it was the end to their injustice, not to mention freedom from their captors, for God to finally come through on his promises, to give them a land, a people, and a blessing, to treat them as his own people. All of these needs they had, they cried out very desperately for. Ask any of the slaves what they most needed, and what do you think they would say? They needed the Egyptians to let them go. Duh. Now, that is certainly true, and God does accomplish that rescue for them. I don't mean to dismiss that they needed physical rescue from their enemies any more than we really do need fulfillment and security and peace and real belonging. Those are all real needs. But is there an even greater need? The Bible would assume so. One that Israel could not see. And we may not be able to see either. And before they are freed from Egypt, before he leads them through the Exodus, God intends to clue them in on what that need is. You see, the night before they are freed from Egypt, God threatens a tenth and final plague. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the plagues that came on Egypt, they are gruesome, uncomfortable, and deadly. Signs of judgment that God has brought upon Egypt for its crimes, for their ongoing abuse of his people, and all of them intended to finally break the stubborn will of Pharaoh. But the strange thing about this final plague, this tenth plague, this last and culminating plague, is it does not just come against Egypt. It threatens the lives of the Israelites as well. Before this, the plagues had spared the Hebrews, but the tenth plague hovered over them. It haunted and hunted everyone. A plague of death, which would claim the life of every firstborn son, Hebrew or Egyptian. Now, I'm I'm not going to lie, the more you learn about the Passover, the, the more you learn about the Exodus and this plague, the whole affair can seem not just strange and disorienting, but almost cruel. Is God, you might wonder, somehow different than we've imagined him to be? Is he not so much merciful and loving as we wish he was, but maybe he is savage and bloodthirsty? Maybe he enjoys bringing death. Or is there something else going on here? I think so. I think it turns out that even though God is doing a thousand things through these plagues, one of the greatest things he is doing in this one is teaching Israel, his people, about what their greatest need is by confronting them with their greatest enemy. It was not Egypt. It was not Pharaoh. It was death itself. An enduring death. A death that would seal us apart from God, the God we have lost and need so desperately. It would seal us in an, an eternal reality apart from him, an enduring death. 
according to the Bible, death, it says, is not actually simply the natural way of things, even as it is impossible for us to avoid. No, human death has come into the world, according to God's word, by means of a curse. A curse upon a once perfect and complete world, that a, cur- a curse that was actually rightly earned when human beings chose themselves as Lord and Savior instead of God, rather than honor God as their creator and king, and to enjoy love under his care, those creatures, his creatures, his image bearers, rejected and betrayed him, believing that they could make a better life for themselves than the one that he offered them. And so, just like a parent that takes back a privilege from one of their kids who has misused it, or an employer takes back a job once the employee takes advantage of or misuses that job. Just like a parent takes back a privilege or an employer takes back a job, God, as the author and giver of life, has every right to take back life he has given when it has been misused as well. Our lives belong to him, and so long as they are used for ongoing harm and betrayal, the curse remains not just on the human beings that have gone before, but the curse remains on us already. After all, whether the tenth plague would come or not, whether or not the curse comes to those firstborn sons, it is only a matter of time before death would steal their lives. No one gets an out when it comes to death, not even his own people. In the tenth plague, God is simply shortening the timeline, showing them the threat that actually awaits them, confronting them with the curse of sin if the curse of sin is not undone. I'm not going to pretend that this is easy to accept. After all, it means, if this is true, if the curse of sin, the curse of death, is an unnatural thing and one that is rightly sentenced upon us, a curse that awaits us and will confront us someday, it means you and I are worse off than we have ever dared to admit in our lives. Now, the reality of death is apparent. We cannot deny it. We cannot hide from it long. We try to make it romantic and wonderful and natural, but none of us can run from death. None of us can deny it. We just may miss the cause. We miss, may miss why it exists and what it actually threatens. And I'm not going to lie, it is very difficult news to accept. You wouldn't be the first one who had raised an eyebrow. But this is where the lamb comes in. You see, the same God who threatens the curse also provides a way for that curse to pass them by. How? By the blood of a male lamb, no more than a year old, without spot or blemish, sacrificed at twilight. Its blood spread on the tops and sides of their doorframe as a sign before God that a life had already been given in this home as a sign that an innocent life had taken the place of their own. In other words, there was something that could stand between them and the curse of death. But the only thing that would do would be the blood of the lamb. Every year they would celebrate this event, this Passover, the night of their redemption from Egypt, including the night, actually, that Jesus himself was betrayed. The night Before he was betrayed, he was celebrating the Passover, the night that death passed 
the Israelites by. And the day that they left Egypt, a free people. In many ways, every Jewish person, though, knew this exodus, this great exodus that they remembered, even this Passover, while remarkable, even while it marked them forever as a blood-bought people, the curse of sin, the curse of death, still hung over them. Death still haunted them. So long as their hearts persisted in the ongoing rebellion which first broke the world, a true and better exodus was still needed. And that exodus could not come from themselves any more than the first exodus could. An exodus, nonetheless, that God told them to wait for. And according to the Bible, that exodus would come at an even greater cost. Now, one of the other places that a lamb shows up is is hundreds of years later in the book of Isaiah. A prophet who spoke at a time that was no less dark than the days in Egypt. A time when God's people, the sheep of his pasture had gone astray, as Isaiah puts it, had turned every one to his own way. God's people had proven that they were as hard-hearted as Pharaoh himself, under a bondage that was even more unrelenting, and they needed victory and freedom from. A people who needed rescue, this time from themselves. It is there in Isaiah chapter 53 that God speaks of this second lamb, one who would be born and live among his people, unimpressive and ignored. A man, a servant from God, the rightful king of Israel that nonetheless was rejected and despised by them. They shook their heads at him in shame, it says, and it gets even worse in verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Notice, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The image here is tragic, sure, and brutal and unjust, but those words actually don't go far enough. Speaking of the death, not just of an animal sacrifice, but the brutal death of God's own servant. It shows just how serious a slave master sin is that it would blind us and harden us so completely that we could not see our rescue when it was staring us in the face. However, notice that this lamb was willingly and submissively slaughtered. He wasn't just another tragic martyr. This was no grand accident. No, the lamb not only knew that he would be rejected and betrayed, but submitted himself to it. Why? According to verse 5, it tells us, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The death that we deserved that was bound up with the curse of sin, was absorbed by the Lamb of God. Why? So that the guilt and curse of sin might finally and forever pass us by. Not just on one night, but every night to come. So we never need to fear passing through the valley of the shadow of death alone ever again. 
that we never need to fear, that that curse will finally come for us and have its way. Because that curse was felt, fell upon, was absorbed in full by the Lamb of God, that curse might pass our way. By his wounds, we might be healed. And convinced that these two lambs, the Passover lamb and the sacrifice of the servant of God, neither of whom met with pretty fate, it is these lambs that John has in mind. Two lambs who, by dying in the place of others, secured the lives of those they died for, pointing forward still to a final lamb who would finally and forever take away the sins of any and all who would trust in him, a lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. To put this differently, D.A. Carson puts it this way, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent us an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was wealth, was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved sin, our alienation from God, our profound rebellion, our death, and he sent us a savior. A savior who lived his whole life with one purpose in mind, to die, to take the curse upon himself that I might never feel it. That even though we die physically, anyone who would hope in him and his death willingly laid down for the forgiveness of sins might find life on the other side. That a life that will keep us safe and deliver us back to the God we were made for beyond the grave. This is exactly what Jesus has in mind when the night he was betrayed, he celebrated Passover with his disciples, takes the unleavened bread and says, Matthew chapter 26, verse 26, take, eat, this is my body. And then takes the cup of wine. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. Why? For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Less than 24 hours later, after they would have taken these elements, not sure of what they pointed to, that all of these things would come true. The Lamb of God, who would indeed pour out his blood, would be led to his own slaughter, willingly, submissively, for the many, that the curse of sin might pass them by. But it turns out, if the lamb stays dead, none of this actually can be true. The curse will not pass us. Death would have its final word. If the lamb stays dead, there is no hope to be found. Death can't really be defeated. Well, that lamb remains in the grave, which means that we must look at number three, the lamb who lives again. The image of a lamb actually shows up again in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, as John, the same author of the book we have been reflecting on, stands, this time, before God's own throne, weeping. A vision of God's throne, weeping. Why? Because he longs for God's purposes for the world to be finally completed. 
He longs for a new heavens and a new earth, the kind of world that we have longed for and the final death of death to be accomplished. All of the promises of the Bible to finally come true. And even though now in this vision he stands in heaven among a mighty crowd of angelic beings with glory and strength beyond what we can comprehend, none of them can bring this plan about. No one can bring that world to us. No one is worthy to open the scroll of God's plan, save one. One called. Interesting, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The lion, it says, who has conquered. Now we're getting somewhere. Enough of this meek little lamb talk. We're talking about a lion, an image of strength and power. Here we go. And yet, John, as he looks on and watches for this lion to, pr to prowl forward, who does he see? What does he see? In verse 6, and it says, Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. What happened to the lion, the one who had conquered? Well, it turns out they are one in the same. A lamb, a slain, slaughtered lamb at that. A lamb that should be dead, standing very much alive. The lamb is the conquering lion, and it is by being slain that he has conquered. It is by his death that victory has been won, that the purposes and plans of God for the world can finally be accomplished. Why? Verse 9 tells us, as those in, who are gathered in heaven translate this event for us. Tell us why it matters that the lamb was slain and now is standing. Verse 9, worthy are you, speaking of the lamb, to take the scroll, to take God's plans, to open its seals, to make God's world come true. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. A lamb who, by his blood, took away the sins of the world. What did his blood do? It ransomed, it purchased, it rescued a people for their God. A people who will come from absolutely anywhere, from any background, with a whole resume of wrongs that they have done. Yes, that even includes you. It would ransom those who had one thing in common, that they have taken shelter under the blood of the Lamb. And what's the proof? What's the proof that by his Death he has conquered. By being slain he has won. That death has not had the final word. That this one who appeared to be slain is standing. The fact that he lives. The fact that though he was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, through though the blood was painted on the beams, though he absorbed the curse that should have come to me, though he died, Willingly, three days later, he came out the other side alive to never die again. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That is no false promise. It is as true as the risen Christ. A living hope which is as living as he is. Friend, I don't know what brought you here today, but I wonder if those same words might come alive in your heart right now. If God might be calling you to find life and peace in the blood of the Lamb. You know, Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, recalls a time in 1857, a time before he was to preach before unprecedented crowds to fill this large 
um, I believe it was called the Crystal Chapel, that uh, with, uh, with a huge unprecedented crowd again, he decided to go in and test the acoustics of the room a, a day or two previous. And stands where he thinks the stage should go and announces in a loud voice this same verse, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. No one, as far as he knew, was present, only the words rever reverberated throughout the room into one of the side galleries where a workman was getting ready for the event and actually knew nothing of the event itself. And this workman heard the words, was struck on the spot by them, so much so he put his tools down and went home. And later, trusted in this lamb for the forgiveness of his sins. The reason I find this so powerful, it wasn't Spurgeon's sermon to the mighty crowds days later that saved him. It was these words from Jesus himself. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That simple message is for you today. And I wonder if those same words might come alive in your heart today. That you might come to the Lamb who was slain for you. That you might have life forever. Your greatest need isn't for a bit more money or approval or comfort. It is for Jesus and the life that he alone can offer you for the forgiveness of your sins that he alone has accomplished for you. Whether you are a Christian or not, do you hear John appealing to you? Behold him. Are you troubled in sin, friend? Behold him. Are you bitter with grief? Behold him. Are you puffed up with pride? Behold him. Is your, whole, is your heart cold and indifferent? Behold him. Are you weighed down with shame? Behold him. Are you tied up with doubt? Behold him. Are you weighed down with the weight of your sin? Behold him. See him there, our sacrifice, slain yet standing, our once dead Savior, now very much alive, living for you. It is not enough, friends, to be interested in him it is not enough to be impressed by him only to rest upon this savior and surrender everything to him as king to cry with those who are gathered in heaven as they do in revelation verse 12 worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and glory and might and honor forever and ever amen friends who else could deserve it who else could accomplish such a thing behold the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world the lamb who lived the lamb who died God, we come to you.